Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. All right, listeners, we are back with another episode and another interview and a string of great interviews here on Fortress on a Hill. Uh, the, uh, the pandemic edition ongoing, the post-Biden victory all is well, that isn't actually well edition. And every time that I've been introduced in the show, I've been talking about how our guest list has just been better and better. And uh, we've had a heck of a run, I mean, this last year with guests and Actually, you know, Roxanne was one of our our earlier guests when things really started getting strong. You know, when we started getting some really prominent authors and activists and and, and veteran figures, and uh, so we had talked uh, when Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz was on our show months back that we would have her again uh, because it was one of those great episodes where we felt like we didn't cover anything despite covering everything because it was such a good conversation. And so uh, we're lucky to have her back on today, but uh, I'll just give a, very, a, a much briefer than usual kind of bio on Roxanne for those people who didn't hear her last episode or are not familiar with her work, uh, but she is a historian, uh, author, memoirist, speaker, uh, longtime activist in just a number of, of different areas and issues and an incredible backstory that we talked a lot about in the last episode, so go back and check it out. Uh, she researches Western Hemisphere history, international human rights, uh, and of course, Native American history. She grew up in rural Oklahoma. She's the daughter of a tenant farmer and a part Indian mother. She's been active in the, in the international indigenous movement, okay, not just here in the United States, for more than four decades, uh, known for her lifelong commitment you know, to social justice issues, international and national. Uh, she got her PhD at the University of California in Los Angeles, down at UCLA, uh, she taught in the newly established Native American Studies program at Cal State Hayward uh, and, and helped found the departments of ethnic studies and women's studies. You know, her 70, 1977 book, The Great Sioux Nation, was kind of the fundamental document uh, at the, the first international conference on indigenous peoples of the Americas, which was held at UN headquarters okay, in Geneva. Uh, and she is the author and editor of several other books since then, including Roots of Resistance, which is a history of land tenure in New Mexico. Uh, two of her more recent works uh, were the very prominent Indigenous People's History of the United States uh, and then Loaded, a disarming history of the Second Amendment. And, and now she's you know, got a forthcoming book, uh, Not a Nation of Immigrants, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy and a History of Erasure and Exclusion. I mean, Wow, what a hard-hitting subtitle uh, and right up my alley. Um, but, you know, I think that all of these, especially recent books, are particularly relevant for this, like, peculiar kind of tragic moment of ours. And uh, that doesn't really do her extensive work 
justice. Uh, but we're going to dig into all kinds of things. And uh, so, yeah, Roxanne, thanks for coming on again. Thanks so much, Danny. It's good to listen to the podcast. I, 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 it's hard to keep up with them while I was writing the book, but I have a lot to go back to and listen to. And, and thank you for interviewing me again. Oh, well, it's always, it's always a pleasure. And, um, you know, I remember the last time when you came on, we talked about how uh, you had sent us an email and said that you were a fan of the show. And uh, we were pretty, like, <laughs> excited by that, the fact that you were even listening at all. So that that's a that's a pretty cool thing, you know, when you find out that. I think I'm still surprised that anybody cares what, what I have to say. And I'm sure Henry feels the same way. Um, but to kind of open it up a bit, uh, you know, you've, you've got the, the book forthcoming and we'll, we'll dig into, um, to all of that, but, uh, I'm sure this, you know, kind of opening question I will, will relate, but, you know, we talked leading up to the episode, you know, earlier today when we were kind of working out what we would talk about, about, about empire, sort of about imperialism. Um, one of the things that's been interesting to me is, uh, it's something that I have written about a good deal. Um, it is empire is one of the frameworks in my forthcoming, you know, U S history book, uh, that came from the truth dig series. And I even minored in like Imperial history in grad school, um, specifically British, but I covered other things. One of the things that struck me is that at least in the scholarly world, but more and more to some extent in like the public history and also public policy world, Terms like empire, terms like imperial uh, are starting to get at least a little bit more of a hearing as it relates to describing the United States. And uh, that was not very possible even five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. You just didn't hear it very often in the public space, at least. Uh, Scholarship was ahead of of it on that. But I'm interested in uh, how you, you know, I know your book kind of ties to this I and mean, even just the subtitle makes it clear, but, um, first part is, you know, how do you kind of view the, the empire issue, the imperialism issue, the colonialism issue as it relates to our self-styled sort of Republic. And also, uh, as a follow on, does the word empire, does the word imperialism tend to be read or viewed differently from various marginalized communities or historically marginalized communities in the United States, whether it be Native Americans or uh, African Americans? Yeah, it, it is getting um, more common to refer to U.S. as an imperialist uh, state. But you know, this is uh, fairly recent. Uh, it was really with the uh, George W. Bush administration and the invasion of Iraq that um, <clears throat> regular U.S. historians started saying, um, maybe this is imperialism, you know, <laughs> but treading very um, uh, softly. I, I remember writing a, uh, an essay for Monthly Review. Uh, well, they did, you know, um, uh, actually a whole book on U.S. imperialism and um, that it was... Uh, uh, it was a cutting edge, you know, this was like 2001, 2002. So what they've always done, U.S. historians, is, is uh, lock uh, a period of U.S. imperialism, uh, 1898, 
Um, and that only goes really through, they only take it through the 1830s, if, if that even, you know, when the U.S. was occupying Nicaragua and Haiti <clears throat> and the Dominican Republic, um, and had, of course, taken colonies, had colonies. So that was, uh, if you did uh, U.S. history in high school or uh, college undergraduate, that's a chapter of, in history, not, it, not the U.S. history, but a chapter that came and went. So they were really asking in 2001, has it come back? You know, they weren't really... Um, conceding that the U.S. was founded as an imperialist state. Um, but I, you know, I, um, when I um, decided to be a historian, it was based on a class I took at San Francisco State as an undergraduate um, that made me decide to major in history that was called imperialism. And um, it was called world history, actually. But the text we used was called Imperialism, written by an author named P.T. Uh, P. Moon, M-O-O-N, Moon, in the, in the 1930s. It's a brilliant book. I still have a copy of it. Uh, it was just an eye-opener because, you know, it talks about U.S. imperialism uh, as an imperialist state. <laughs> and explains what it is. So this was my entry into history. And that was the last class, the first and the last class I had throughout my um, undergraduate, you know, graduating in history of that, you know, I bring it up in classes and, and everyone would roll their eyes. You know, what are you talking about? U.S. imperialism. So then in graduate school, the first year I did a Latin American history seminar, my first year I was because I wanted to do the Southwest. And so you had to do Latin America and, and the United States. And there they just threw around, you know, perfectly conservative professors and, and students throwing around the term U.S. imperialism because they're dealing with Latin America. So then I take the U.S. seminar the next year and they're talking about manifest destiny. You know, the invasion of Mexico is manifest destiny. And I had never heard that term before, or I hadn't, you know, I hadn't um, absorbed it. And I wouldn't have thought of it as, you know, a term to replace imperialism. So I held up my hand and I said, are you talking about imperialism? And the professor actually said to me, are you a Marxist? <laughs> so that was, uh, you know, that's my experience with uh, dealing with imperialism. I, I, I wasn't exactly a Marxist yet, but I thought, well, I, that's something I should read. <laughs> I guess someone agrees with me. Um, but I don't think Marx really understood the United States either uh, and didn't uh, deal with U.S. imperialism. But um, I think the, um, the, the main thing, have people have, you know, throw the term around, it means many different things. They refer to, you know, there, there are two books called the Comanche Empire. And I'm thinking, hmm, where was the capital of that empire? Yeah. 
uh, what was what was that about? But it's a best-selling book, you know. And now the same author, who's from Finland, um, uh, wrote one on, on the Lakota Empire. Mm-hmm. You know, don't know where that capital was either. But um, it 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 does get you know it does get thrown around. But I think. It, it has to be um, attached to capitalism in the last 500 years to make any sense. Um, I mean, it had its predecessors, you know, in the, uh, in the Roman Empire. And then, of course, the Holy Roman Empire, far more imperialist than the, um, they're the ones who sent Columbus out, you know, um, much more imperialist than the um, uh, previous Roman Empire. Um but the the United States became an empire as a settler uh, as a settler colonialism, the first settler colonial uh, state based on capitalism. The British had had colonized Ireland um, and settler colonialism, but it was and that was the precursor to, of course, their their um, other imperialism. But Ireland wasn't then made in, you know, in um, itself, it was colony. Whereas the United States, the colonies were not really colonies. They were, you know, it's, it's a misnomer really to talk about the British colonies in North America. They were extensions of the British uh, empire. Um, they were... Uh, British people, you know, they were not colonized by the British. They were the British colonizers. So they were colonizing the native peoples and, and of course, Africans, uh, enslaving Africans. Um, So, you know, that's um, unfortunately much of the world, including uh, national liberation movements, including Franz Fanon and others, uh, believe the narrative uh, of the United States and Franz Fanon ends his, you know, that book is is like a Bible to me uh, or like a Bible is to Christians. Um, but he ends it with this plea to the decolonization movements in Africa, taking the U.S. as an example of a country founded in revolution that went off the tracks, you know, and that is so disappointing that Fanon could not have um, uh, conceived, you know, that that's why we're in such a mess, you know, not only do the citizens of the United States not, and anyone who's political, including most people on the left, not deal with the real U.S. history, but the whole world has this image of a, a you know, a, a, a struggling little colonies of Britain uh, rebelling and, and creating this um, beautiful, perfect democracy um, that went off the tracks, you know, in this way or that way. But it was really a split in the, in the empire, um, it was sort of like the Civil War. Um, no one would call the Confederacy a colony that split off. It was a split in the 
you know, and really in the U.S. empire because the Confederates were just as imperialist as the um, uh, as the Union. Uh, they wanted to make states out of uh, uh, Nicaragua and Honduras, uh, make U.S. states out of them. We're already sending um, before and during um, the Civil War. Um, actually trying to create settlements there. So they were imperialist too. So that was a split in an empire just as the United States uh, split from Britain. Um, they Once they won, they canceled all their debts. They were in debt to merchants, um, huge, huge debts they all held. They had to win or else they were bankrupt as individuals. Um, but what what they they didn't they had personal wealth, but they didn't have um, uh, a resource base for capitalism. But they had the conception of capitalism, and that is is embedded into the constitution itself. So the commodity uh, capitalism requires commodification of of goods of all goods and. Um, making it into a saleable unit. So the only um, immediate resource they had um, to commodify, to create wealth, uh, state wealth, not just individual wealth, was land. And that land, of course, belonged to the Native people. And so the Northwest Ordinance the land ordinance they devised in um, 1787, right before the constitution, the constitution was based on it. Uh, the land ordinance is the most important document in U.S. history that hardly ever gets taught. Uh, it's the outline for taking the continent. It's the map, maps even to the Pacific. And of course, half of Mexico, actually, I think, almost all of Mexico is included in those maps as a destination. And um, so this is, you know, this is what has been called a fiscal military state um, that uh, a capitalist state built for war uh, because this was going to take war. They knew that because they had already been 160 years warring it took 160 years to take the 13 colonies, which were just, you know, just on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean. So to take the whole continent, it was a hundred years war. I call it the hundred years war. And that's what it should be in U.S. Uh, history texts that um, was many wars or many battles in many different nations they were fighting but and um, annexing. Uh, but in all of that, it was land. And then the second land, important land legislation was during the Civil War under Lincoln, the uh, Homestead Acts and the uh, Desert Land Acts, all of the acts that created uh, for the West that was not yet conquered at all, west of the Mississippi, except for the um, former Spanish colonies. And even there, they hadn't conquered the native people who were resisting the Apaches and the Navajos and the Comanches. Uh, those wars would go on, but they were already mapping that land and 
uh, distributing it, um, both to companies and to ind individuals, the railroads, uh, so forth. So, so real estate then, and is, is still the basis of U.S. capitalism, which is unusual in the world. I mean, no else, nowhere else in the world is the capitalist economy uh, grounded in real estate. In 2008, um, that, uh, uh, that depression that was um, uh, devastating was um, the collapse of the real estate market that affected everything. So this is then, you know, really what imperialism is, is, is the um, grabbing of resources. And if they have to colonize the people, I think, you know, they prefer not to, if they don't have to. The British had uh, developed uh, intermediaries, the Raj, uh, mostly to rule for them. Um, and that was much more profitable than, you know, trying to, to run a colony. But the United States created settler colonialism as a way of um, uh, building, you know, the capitalist state and the military power to then move um, over overseas. But we have to remember that the it wasn't just continental; that the United States um, was in North Africa. That's where the Marines uh, got their him the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. So Tripoli, um, I don't know why it doesn't ring with people as uh, what were U.S. warships doing in two wars against the Berbers uh, in uh, North Africa. And um, it was opening up uh, trade because they, had, they were charging them fees to go into their ports. Um, and um, it took two wars to end those fees. So the United States was already, you know, uh, that was Thomas Jefferson's administration, 1806 and 1808. So that's my, you know, my sort of, excuse me, I thought I had turned my phone on. Oh, no um, that's my short course on imperialism. Sure. Well, as one as one quick follow on before I uh, let the other guys get a word in edgewise, which is never my strength. Um, I've I'm interested in, in in so much of what you said, and and I've got sort of my own take on it that I think is you know it's in line with a lot of scholars and and pretty similar to what you're mentioning here. And I think it's so important the way we phrase the empire thing, you know, as a side, it, it's funny that they asked you if you were a Marxist, because it seems like I get asked that question every time I say anything about human decency or justice. <laughs> like people are like, whoa, well, what you just said sounds like something Jesus would say. Are you a communist? You know, <laughs> so that's like a fascinating aside. But I think that what's interesting, two things jumped at me that you said. One was that, you know, even certain like foreign liberation movements, um, you know, international figures that are, you know, otherwise, you know, on the side of uh, justice and, uh, and rebellion against, you know, injustice, often don't really understand the United States, including Marx to a certain extent, as you mentioned. Uh, and it does seem to me that not just the American citizenry, but to some extent, although it's changing, but to some extent for a long time, 
the international community also fell for the myth of America. And so much of what you're describing is sort of deflating much of that myth. And one of the second thing that really jumped out at me, I think is important. I'd like to hear a little bit more on from you is um, you mentioned that what, what I've called, so when people teach American history, the only era that they are even willing to think of calling it American empire is like you said, from about 1898 with the Spanish American war, when we kind of jump overseas to, you know, take the Spanish Caribbean and uh, Pacific colonies really from about there to like you said, at most uh, the 1930s, when we have Marines all over the Caribbean and Central America. And I've called it the Imperial blip teaching that uh, it's taught as though America had this little blip in its history where it like dabbled in empire a little, but that was a mistake. That was an anomaly. Uh, when in reality, as I often argue, and I think you largely agree, uh, you know, the United States is sort of, an imperial entity from the start, uh, even as colonies, a settler colonial enterprise. And I gave a lecture, uh, like a guest lecture yesterday on, or on Wednesday on the Mexican American war for a libertarian outfit. They are big on the libertarian circuit for some reason. Um, and I was describing this, uh, the different phases and talking about how, well, you know, one of the first real regime change wars in American history, that phrase is big now, right? Uh, one of the first regime change wars was against another republic, right? Uh, our neighbor in Mexico. And uh, it's interesting because it's that war which creates from sea to shining sea. You know, in other words, we don't, that's not who we really are quite yet until we take a third or more of the northern part of Mexico. And it's clear from looking at the documents from his administration and the comments in the Democratic Party hack newspapers that the Mexican-American War wasn't ever really about Texas. The real prize for Polk, the president, and for the Democratic Party stalwarts in general was California. They say it like it's really about California, like getting the Pacific. Uh, and of course, you can't have you, you probably don't have the Philippine invasion, occupation, the imperial blip, so to speak, that mythology. That doesn't happen unless we get become a Pacific power and we become a Pacific power because of that first phase of empire, uh, either seizing land from Mexico or colonizing uh, and displacing and murdering Native American peoples. And of course, also sort of colonizing and creating second class citizenship for the Mexican peoples of the Southwest. So uh, I'd be interested if you could you know, kind of talk about why you think that imperial blip, as I'm describing it, if you agree, uh, why that's a problematic way of teaching it. And then uh, that first phase of empire surrounding the, the Mexican component. Yeah, that, you know, getting to California, uh, which was, of course, 1887, um, the Northwest Ordinance was the, was, was definitely, they had to get to the Pacific and the Spanish empire was in a way. So Thomas Jefferson also sent out um, uh, Pike, a Zabellian Pike, uh, uh, army officer, uh, spy, uh, to accidentally get arrested by Spanish officials. Uh, Mexico was not yet liberated. They were just beginning their um, national liberation movement um, that didn't uh, succeed until 1821, a really brutal 10-year war. But 
Um, Pike was taken all the way to Mexico City from that area called Pike's Peak where they, he was detained. Um, and he was a map maker, he was a spy. So imagine he had this whole trip, it took a month, you know, to, to get there to Mexico City to be interrogated. And um, he was mapping the whole way. And that was later the path, you know, that the uh, first, uh, uh, the Northern invasion took place. There was an invasion by sea, of course, the Veracruz. But what, um, you know, uh, Walter Johnson, the historian at Harvard, Walter Johnson's um, uh, new book on St. Louis, um, is really um, important reading because St. Louis was the outpost for imperialism very, very quickly by the um, 1830s. And um, there, you know, Thomas Hart Benton and, and his son-in-law, John Fremont, these people uh, who were um, uh, urging, you know, uh, getting to the Pacific, they were obsessed with China getting to China. And when I read his book, and of course I already knew some of that from taking, you know, um, the age of Jackson history. Um, I, um, it wasn't until I was writing this new book and I got to the chapter I call Yellow Peril um, of the um, uh, Chinese, you know, Chinese immigration and the history behind it that I found that that obsession with China goes back to the Middle Ages, that it's a strand in Western history of the paranoia about China. It explains so much about, you know, this China um, bashing today and the Wuhan flu and, you know, this and that. Uh, and uh, they called it yellow peril the Austrian um, Archduke uh, uh, or whatever he was, the, head, the leader of Austria, had a dream, you know, that the Chinese took over and, and um, he called it the Yellow Peril, but it existed long before that. And then I, I realized that Europe, Western Europe, is not a co continent. It's actually a peninsula of Asia and they, you know, their imperial, imperialism, which was bred there with the Crusades is, you know, um, it's, a, it's a kind of internalized self-defense, you know, like of um, um, having to kill first, even though, you know, China has never invaded Europe. Um, has never really even threatened anyone in the West. There are no Chinese warships on our coasts or in the Caribbean. And the U.S. warships are all over the South China Sea. You know, it's, um, and this is so um, accepted by the general public, you know, that we're under threat by China all the time. So, it gave me a deeper understanding than I uh, had had before about, I knew they wanted to get to the Pacific, 
And of course, then they went, you know, and annexed the Philippines and almost every island um, in the Pacific um, for bases. And it is an empire basis, and that's really important. David Vine, I don't know if you've read David Vine's work. He has a new uh, a new book out. Yes, I have. It's excellent. Yeah, he's really, really good in understanding uh, uh, these 700, 800 bases that the United States has. So it's a, it's unique in that sense of being an empire basis that um, has avoided having to, um, you know, after the Philippines of, of actually um, a permanent, you know, having colonies to deal with. Um, so they overlap colonialism and imperialism, but they're not, you know, they're, they're not always, um, there's always imperialism, but not always uh, colonies as such. Although there are people on those islands, <laughs> of course, that in Guam, I mean, there are the Chamora people that, um, the indigenous people who are very oppressed by, it. so it is, you know, a form of colonialism as well. But I think that, um, I don't know if you, you all have looked into it, uh, how much in the, in the military um, um, subconscious you might um, detect that um, fear of China and the Chinese hordes and, you know, the yellow peril. Have you, have you detected that all in your military experience? Well, I'll, I'll just open with absolutely. Uh, and in fact, if you haven't read it, I'll shoot you um, an article. Andy Basevich wrote a pretty good piece, you know, West Point grad, uh, big time anti-war uh, guy now who runs Quincy Institute, who's president over there. He wrote a piece based on the army wrote this document, published it this year, uh, basically all about finding a role sort of for the army in this Pacific new Cold War because that's always been sort of an Air Force and Navy-dominated theater, at least since the Korean War. And, uh, and what he detects in reading this document is that um, not only is there this alarmism about, you know, like a new yellow peril of sorts, but that each of the branches, each of the service branches of the military is like looking for a role because from a parochial standpoint of the different branches of the service, everybody wants in on this like future conflict in order to like protect their budgets and their relevancy. Um, but I have definitely noticed that there is a, a culture, like an assumption uh, that China is an implacable foe and that we will have to do something about China and that it will be a military something. Uh, the question is at what level and how far it goes, but it reminds me of when I first went into the army and BT and Henry, you jump in at, at when I'm done here. I'm telling you if you had the same thing, but when I first came into the army in 2001 in July in basic training, so before September 11th, you know, and for years after that, we were still shooting targets with red stars on their helmets and they were called crazy Ivans. And back then, even though the cold war went over 10 years, the lingering effects of it were that in the military culture, in the army culture, as I saw it, the assumption was still that like the Russians, the Ruskies were the enemies. And what's interesting is um, there was always a Chinese component to that because they were always like a subset of the Cold War, like a second theater, but like not quite as important. But I'm starting to see even more of an assumption 
that it is in fact China that's the real threat, that we spend so much time worrying about Russia and yeah, we're still worried about Putin and all that with the Trump and the elections, but real power is China. That's the future enemy. And there's an assumption that there's a military solution. I don't know, guys, what did you think about that uh, in your time in the service regarding China and Russia and such? One of the first ranges I did after I got to Fort Lewis following basic training, I was getting ready to shoot the Mark 19, which is a, a, a grenade machine gun, essentially. It shoots grenades very fast if you can get it to keep shooting. Um, but my platoon sergeant was just kind of encouraging people as they were up on the line. And I remember him screaming out, kill a commie for mommy. <laughs> and I was like, at first I didn't understand what the hell he was talking about. And then I thought about it for a while and it's like, okay, but this was 2003. So yeah, that, <laughs> that stuff lingers <laughs> an awful long time. Yeah. 2005. 2006 we were still heavily into the the russian uh invasion problem you know seeing the the crazy ivans and all of our tactics are still being based off of fighting the cold war as opposed to you know we're several years into fighting in iraq and afghanistan now and we still haven't changed our uh our tactics and our doctrines yet it wasn't really the only real training that we got for Iraq and Afghanistan was from all the reclass people who had gone through before. We had a lot of uh, air defense artillery guys who had gone overseas to Iraq and Afghanistan. And they realized that, you know, they were being sent out as infantry anyway. So they might as well get all the combat training, uh, either infantry or scouts, Yeah, I think um, Russia is also, um, I remember, um, you know, doing a lot of work at um, the human rights over at, in Geneva. There's a kind of permanent presence of some really interesting people who uh, uh, head the non-governmental organizations and, and the UN organizations. And there are really a lot of smart people uh, who I've learned a lot about the world from. But uh, one, uh, Edith, Edith Ballantyne, who was certainly a, a mentor, she's the Secretary General of um, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And she said one day, uh, she herself was an uh, uh, immigrant to Canada, uh, a refugee. Her family were refugees from. Uh, Czechoslovakia, uh, German-speaking um, Bohemia, um, who were had been communists uh, and were um, uh, some of them had been in concentration camps. And anyway, her family was in Canada, so she had her own life experience. But uh, she said there's a, a kind of um, racism against Russians and. She didn't put it in those terms, but I thought of that when I was uh, doing this chapter on uh, the Yellow Peril, that it, it extends beyond China. China is the, it, is the uh, center of it, but it, it, it really expands um, to uh, Slavs, you know, to um, 
um, that, that there, this kind of then to Orientalism, what uh, um, Edward Said so brilliantly um, uh, theorized of um, the Western view, the Arabs and Muslims. So it's it extends beyond China that the Yellow Peril. Um, I included all of those, all of Asia under that under that moniker, you know, just because there is that that specific kind of racism that um, these people are inherently a threat. Somehow they're out to get us. And of course, 9-11, <laughs> you know, that, that was like a, a, a dream come true for, for paranoia um, about the coming to get. And boy, did they ever strike back, huh? You guys uh, got the brunt of it too. But that, you know, that is so scary for the pretty immediate future of, um, of a war, uh, even though I don't think China will ever be the aggressor in that sense. I mean, you know, come and uh, invade the United States or Russia either, but they certainly have, you know, they have the weaponry uh, to fight back and nuclear weaponry. And so it's, I think it's really, um, plus the SpaceX thing, you know, is, is um, or the, uh, what, are, what are they calling it? That new command, Space Command? Space oh, the Force. Space Force. Yeah, the Space yeah, Force. Yeah, Space Force. And, and, we, and we thought Star Wars was a joke in the 80s, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, right. Like, it's like, Reagan is like, see, I'm vindicated from the grave. That's what he's thinking. Really, he would be celebrating yeah, um, so there's, you know, really some, if we don't, I know, Danny, you're a historian too, but, um, and you probably get as frustrated as I do of, of people um, not wanting to deal with history, saying, well, the, this is the present, this is what we have to deal with, and I just don't see how we can deal with any of these things without coming to terms with um, with U.S. history, uh, because it, why has the left never won in the United States? Never won anything ever. You know, <laughs> I, every other country in the world, you know, has left parties and um, and our trade unions or business, you know, business outfits, corporate, um, and even those are diminishing almost to zero. Um, the private you know, private, uh, for private companies and the public workers are so, um, unions are restricted about their strikes and also we don't have, you know, the kinds of institutions that can, um, put up a real, um, uh, fight, you know, and, and get through to be a politician. You almost have to, even if you don't believe it, um, you have to accept the the narrative of the United States, and um, so it just keeps ritually, um, uh, you know, reproducing itself. I know a lot of teachers. Um, I don't know what the effects will be, but the Indigenous Peoples' History of the United States just really hit a chord with teachers um, and librarians. And 
uh, they've made it, you know, a, a, a best-selling a best book, you know, and like in the top 1,000 books for the last six years. And I, um, I can't even fulfill all the invitations I get to go and talk with educators. Um, and um, the thing that most surprised me was last September, a year ago September, I was invited to the um, um, Teachers of the Northeast uh, gathering K to 12 teachers. And I, there, there's an indi- a young adult a version of Indigenous People's History that came out in uh, uh, July of uh, last year. So I was invited and they um, had me uh, as a keynote and I didn't realize that every teacher there was using that was was going to in the fall use that book. There were like three thousand or so um, teachers there. It just it just really blew my mind that this is what they're teaching to young people, and I I don't know what the effect will be. I don't even know how they keep their jobs <laughs> teaching this book, but. Um, you know, they, uh, teachers are pretty remarkable. So it's, uh, they seem to be the only ones with, uh, you know, dynamic unions as well, teachers and nurses. Um, so I think we have to, um, and I, I think you guys and, you know, the, uh, and women, the people who've been in the military, uh, we're just, you know, we're kept, um, we're kept innocent of anything that goes on in the military. We don't want to hear it and they don't want us to hear it. And, uh, you know, something like Fort Hood blows up and maybe it's in the paper for one or two days, but it doesn't get to, you know, the, um, the reality. So I think the, um, for I've long felt this ever since the Vietnam war and the Vietnam vets against the war, began that this is the most important um, uh, movement that uh, that exists. And um, Veterans for Peace kept it going at a time when, um, you know, the war- wars were almost all covert in the 1980s. And, um, I mean, they were known. There was nothing secret, actually, about them. I mean, if I could find out. I don't know why the New York Times couldn't. <laughs> it's like I'm not an investigative reporter or have access to secrets, but uh, but they were covert. In other words, there weren't any or very few U.S. Um, citizens dying. So I maybe you could talk about how how you all are doing and what prospects you have for you know, putting forth a really strong, uh, I mean, really organizing yourself and seeing yourselves as, uh, you know, uh, if you will, the tip of the spear for, for, uh, for our future. Well, I'm, I'm going to start and finish kind of, and then um, turn over most of the rest of the conversation to Henry and BT, because you mentioned Veterans for Peace uh, as one of the organizations that maintained itself after Vietnam veterans against the war during kind of the dormant years of the anti-war movement, which one could argue we're still in, although I think there's a rising tide. Um, 
because I'm, I'll be doing a call here in just a bit with um, some leadership of Veterans for Peace. They've actually managed to uh, get a hearing with some members of the Biden transition team. And I've been asked to, uh, to, you know, be on that next week, uh, probably around the time this episode releases actually for the listeners. Um, and we have a prep call on it. I think it is important to note that uh, there's a lot of talk today and some of it makes sense and some of it's overblown, but I think we've all heard a lot of talk about, you know, okay, boomer, you know, this idea of sort of almost like dismissing like an entire generation as uh, kind of like foggy and sort of uh, out of touch and politically, you know, awful and, and, and bigoted. And in many cases, that's true. But it, I think what it, it, what's wrong about it is that there's two things. Number one, it misunderstands the real gains, however small. OK, but the real street activism gains of, of a generation that was empowered during the civil rights and, and anti-Vietnam War movement that we should take seriously because uh, we haven't ended any wars, you know, not that that was the main or the only factor that ended the Vietnam War, but there was serious work done. So I think we shouldn't dismiss the activism of the previous generation, but also, you know, there were folks who kept it going, uh, who never quit. They didn't stop when the draft ended um, and they weren't just veterans, but Veterans for Peace was an organization that um, really kind of like rekindles itself in the 80s uh, after Vietnam veterans against the war kind of dies out. And, and as you mentioned, they're at the forefront of uh, fighting against uh, the proxy wars of uh, the Reagan years in particular in Central America, in anti-apartheid international activism, which was very much tied to the apartheid here at home as well as Israel or it should be. And uh, it was really inspiring. And my last point that's interesting about veterans and their potential to be not a vanguard exactly, but uh, a part, an important part, especially in a society that adulates them so, right? You know, whether that's good or bad, I think it's a fetishization and it's awful. But living in the world as it is, I think we have to use that platform we've been given. But sometimes the veterans that speak like weren't even necessarily veterans of the U.S. Army. And to that, I mean... You know, I rewatched the old documentary from the 80s, The Good War or The Good Fight, uh, which was about the veterans of the Lincoln Brigade, American volunteers in the Spanish-American War, the original Antifa, right? And we were supposed to say Antifa is bad now, right? But these guys who uh, went and fought against fascism and Franco when our government was kind of complicit with him. And of course, Texaco selling him all the oil he needed because the Germans and Italians couldn't give him that because they were importers themselves. But these thousands of guys who go over there and uh, they take 70% casualties in their first battle, which is actually the highest rate uh, for a U.S. Army unit, uh, except they weren't even a U.S. Army unit in the history of our wars. Uh, and they were rallying with Veterans for Peace. There's a, there's a clip in this documentary, which is actually pretty much worth watching. I mean, it's older, but it's very good. Um, there's a clip in the eighties where veterans of the Lincoln brigades, you know, these are lefties, right? These are, these are old school lefties in the United States. Uh, many of them communist party members, many of them union members, a third of them Jewish, uh, about half of them from the New York area, most of whom had never fired a firearm. Uh, they got to fire five bullets before the battle at Harama, right? Which is uh, memorialized in Woody Guthrie song and stuff, Harama Valley. But they, they actually, in, in the cattle cars that brought them to the battle, they got five bullets that day and they were, they fired them at a barn. They, they got to test fire five bullets. First time most of them had ever fired a gun. These are city kids. These are New York kids. Uh, and they're massacred of course, but they fight very bravely. They were rallying with the veterans for peace in solidarity 
against our support for the Contras, against our support for the military di dictatorship in El Salvador that was murdering priests and nuns. And it was an inspiring thing. And uh, to watch it, to remember that that happened, and it, it does tell me that there is a, uh, there is a role for, for veteran organizations to use the credibility they have to continue that activism. And, and if the Biden administration goes dorm, like goes Obama style again, sort of where it's abstract, tech heavy drones, advisors, and doesn't do the big invasions like of Iraq, which I suspect is probably what's going to happen. Uh, they're going to need to be, we're going to need to be out in the forefront saying, look, no, this is really war. Um, it feels like war to the Yemeni children under the American made bombs, just because we're not invading with hundreds of thousands of troops doesn't mean we're not at war and, and they're going to have to help fire up an anti-war movement. So that's my basic take on it. Um, fellas, you jump in and, uh, and I'm probably going to dip off here in a bit. And, uh, I know you have so much more to ask about, uh, the books and, uh, and specifically some of the native American stuff with BT. The guys and I love doing the podcast, being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone whom you might think would be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for minorities and inflicts on minorities across the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a moment and share this with them. Our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are. Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Jason, Zach H., Ren Jacob, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our awesome store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. The link is in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Thanks, Danny. Happy New Year. Oh, yes. I can't wait for a new year. 2020 has been rough. <laughs> um, I, uh, Roxanne, I'm floored hearing what you mentioned about so many teachers and libraries using your work. I think that's, that's just incredible. 
um, and and somewhat connected to the, our discussion here about about veterans that there's a uh, I know for me learning some uh, U.S. imperial history and, and moving into that very wide subject there was a there was a feeling of betrayal of of why did I not know about this much much earlier in my life and I mean it's it's stereotypical you know history instruction for you know going to public school in America it's useless it's it's if there are is something mentioned about um us being an imperial state it's limited to what you and danny were talking about earlier as being a a blip on the radar and not what we have going but um but i think that 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 sense of betrayal you know for veterans like like bt danny and myself finding out that there was all of this knowledge and history and our 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 quote-unquote service if you want to call it that was was marching over that and you know i know i feel a sense of betrayal on that so you know, for people, for for instructors and professors and and librarians who, I would I would imagine consider themselves first. You know, they consider themselves to to know a lot of things, to hear this history, and to know that it, it needs to be added in the history they already have could be a a, a great betrayal in their minds. And and uh, I can I can definitely uh, I can definitely understand that viewpoint. Yeah, I. Um... I I agree. I think um, I think we do have. I mean, we know from these demonstrations in June um, that and and you know some of that Black Lives Matter was born here, right in the Bay Area where I live, and I um, I saw it developing, and it really um, we have to keep that in mind that um, it started, you know, just with three women and a hashtag uh, talking to each other, not knowing what to do about these um, horrible incidents that were happening. Um, you know, our incident here and uh, um, uh, with the uh, Bart, um, Bart killing a young man. Um, this is, it feels so helpless, you know, so they, they developed it into uh, an amazing movement that uh, that burst out in June that was unexpected. Um, I, I think even they had no idea that it would become, you know, what what it did. So we never know, you know, what our efforts will uh, produce, but we know that nothing will happen if we don't keep uh, doing you know, something that then does, you know, uh, does have the possibility to take off. And um, I sometimes feel, of course, I'm, you know, I'm older now and I'm limited um, in um, physically and uh, what I can sustain. I wasn't able to go out to the demonstrations. I'm an asthmatic, you know, I'm prone to the, um, uh, to any flu that comes around, Um probably would would die you know if I contracted this disease so I um but you know what uh I gained confidence in writing the book that because of the the book the other book having made such an impact that um so many different endeavors you know make a difference um it doesn't have to be uh 
any one thing, but I do think we need um, we need organization. And I um, I uh, in the past um, changes, real changes, revolutions have relied upon. Um, uh, working class, you know, the working class as a working class, as, as a conscious working class. Um, and we don't, we don't seem to have that in the United States, but actually we do. I mean, teachers and nurses are a good part of the working class. And of course, health workers, um, uh, as the people age and as we suffer these pandemics and all are probably going to be one of the largest uh, uh, sectors of of the working class. And uh, we define the working classes, you know, people working on on the production line or in the mines, you know, digging um, metals out of the mines or the coal mines. And it's a very masculinized, um, concept of the working class um teachers and health workers are you know predominantly women so i i was thinking that but i was thinking on the other hand that the you know military veterans have um, learned a discipline and you know some some useful some very useful human traits that um are given to organizing so i think um I think that that's really important. Um, BT, do you live in California, BT? I used to live in California. I live in Nevada right now. Oh, you're in Nevada. Yeah. Um, And um, Henry, you're up in uh, Salem. Uh, uh, Portland. I mean, Portland. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But you were at Fort Lewis. Yeah. 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 I spent, I spent six years at Fort Lewis. I met a wonderful um, uh, Iraq vet against the war who had a little bitty office there outside of uh, Fort Lewis. I I lost touch with him, but um, there was some pretty interesting things going on (laughs) there. Uh, Didn't you have one officer who uh, did something? What was it? happened at Fort Lewis? There was a, um, towards the very beginning of the Iraq war, there was a lieutenant, a first lieutenant, if I remember correctly, who refused to deploy. That's right. Um, I don't, I can't remember his name at the moment, but I'll, I'll look it up and add it to the show notes. But, um, and he was a, he was seen as a pariah in the ranks. I remember hearing people talk about him back then that it was, it, it was, just, you know, how dare he step away from his duty and, and, um, but, you know, looking back on it now is that those are the examples that, that we need to follow. But, um, Roxanne, I'd like to, to chat a little bit about, uh, your new book, um, the title of, uh, not, not a nation of immigrants. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, it's, you know, it's main thrusts and, and your, uh, your reason for writing it. Yeah, I, um, I think it was when, you know, I, I wrote a little, um, uh, I call it, it's really like a rant more than an essay, but it got, um, uh, in 2005, I think, 
uh, I did I did it on um, monthly reviews online um, blog that they had started and it it you know it traveled to others and then it uh, got all over the um, all over social media Facebook didn't exist yet. But uh, it got revived when Facebook existed. Counterpunch uh, posted it, and it started traveling again. It was called "Stop Calling This a Nation of Immigrants," and it's basically an argument about settler colonialism that um, um, that you know people like to say uh, uh, that um, they were. Um, early immigrants or before the revolution, they immigrated, they were first immigrants. And so it's a, it's a way of covering up settler colonialism. But on the other hand, there have been, you know, after settler colonialism was, uh, was completely set institutionally, then you had uh, the influx, um, the first influx of um, a massive influx of uh, Irish uh, famine refugees in the 1840s. Uh, there were no immigration laws other than um, um, the Ollion and Sedition laws, you know, of uh, um, Alexander Hamilton's work. Um, but Aliens, you know, who um, are spying and all, but there, there were no immigration laws. And so they just came, you know, anyone who wanted to come to the United States just came on a boat and um, got off and, and there they were. Uh, it was a different, you know, they, to become a citizen, they had to uh, do a few things, but not, not very much. But these were all Europeans. And of course, the Irish were white Um and mostly um, fair, and um, they were terribly persecuted. Um, you know, I've always heard a lot of stories about uh, the difficulties they had. They, it was right when the uh, U.S. invasion of Mexico was being prepared, and they were swooped up as immigrants tended to be. You know, like at the waterfront, uh, these. Uh, army catchers just swooping them up and, and putting them into the army to go fight. And of course, some of them, a whole battalion, they formed a battalion and changed sides and fought on the side of um, uh, Mexico in that war, the Patricio Brigade. Um, but the most of the Irish, I mean, the bulk of them uh, did not do that. And many were killed and, so they were, you know, they 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 were horribly treated. Um, but I started looking at, you know, what I was interested in is um, uh, is is this nation of immigrants. First of all, just that concept, and then, you know, that was like 2005, and then ten years later, 2015, this blockbuster Broadway movie came out. Um, uh, Hamilton, the revolution, which totally falsifies everything uh, in it, practically is false, including all of the founders being black people. 
<laughs> dark people and no slaves uh, in the whole thing. But beyond that, you know, it was uh, its main theme and what people would crazy for, especially liberals, was that because liberals used to hate Hamilton and uh, conservatives liked him because he was a, a diehard capitalist. But suddenly, uh, because uh, he's, por they, he's portrayed as an immigrant, and I thought it's kind of tragic that a, a Puerto Rican who's uh, colonized, you know, a, a place that's colonized, Lin-Manuel uh, Miranda, would be the one to, you know, proclaim himself as an immigrant to New York when he was, you know, a U.S. citizen forced upon him because he was colonized in Puerto Rico. So twisting that history and then seeing Hamilton as um, a Caribbean who came as a poor uh, shoeless immigrant and and of course, none of that was true. Uh, he was white and he was of the elite and he was British and he came before the revolution and he was a settler, you know, he came to go to Columbia University and um, he was an elite and um, he was not an immigrant. I mean, you, no one was called an immigrant before the revolution, they were settlers. So, um, and they were all European except the, the slaves who were brought from Africa. So that falsification and that uh, renewal of a nation of immigrants. So when I started, you know, I, my editor, Indigenous People's History of the United States um, at Beacon Press, I have one paragraph in that book, Indigenous People's History, I don't know if you remember that, if you've read it, if you remember that paragraph, but it's just one paragraph where I denounce the nation of immigrants uh, context. It's in the context of saying what settler colonialism is and how that tries to cover it up. And she asked me if I could write a book on that. And I said, sure, I'll write a book on that um, too. But um, about that, uh, that was, you know, that was only three years ago. Uh, but what I was really had gotten upset about was the, the Hamilton musical. Um, and I did go see it because I felt like I couldn't uh, write it, you know, without, um, write about it without seeing it. And I found, you know, fellow travelers, um, Ishmael Reed, who's a black uh, poet and writer uh, in Oakland, wrote a one one act play uh, who the real Alexander Hamilton was. But I, you know, I, I then started doing research on where, where did this come from, you know, this, this nation of immigrants. And it wasn't hard to find out that it was John F. Kennedy, which is interesting, a son of Irish immigrants, uh, rich ones, but nevertheless Irish. Um, and um, he wrote it when he was a senator, uh, 1958. And it looks like it was, um, it, it was a preparation for running for president, how to naturalize uh, immigration um, by, um, making everyone 
a, an immigrant because I, you know, I realized once I started doing the book and researching that it wasn't at all. Uh, and I, I knew from my own life experience growing up in rural Oklahoma, there were those of us who were settlers. We were original Americans. My father was uh, Scots-Irish heritage before the revolution. They started coming in the uh, 17, uh, in the, um, uh, yeah, in the 17th century, in the early 17th century. And um, then there were the immigrants. There were the Polish immigrants and the German immigrants. And by the time I was growing up, they were already, um, you know, they, they were first and second generation U.S. citizens. They were no longer, you know, from the old country. I remember one family, very elderly, who was from the old country still. But, but they were, we still call them immigrants. You know, they, they were the, they're the immigrants and we're the settlers, you know. So I knew that, but I had never really put it together uh, how people get Americanized, you know, and how in some ways immigrants, um, of course, immigrants of color never do really, even enslaved Africans, uh, descendants uh, who came before most white people in the United States. Uh, they can date themselves back to, you know, 1619, um, that, you um, they're never quite full citizens. They're con uh, contingent. They're contingent people. And only these original white um, settlers, Scots, Irish, or English, or German, were um, ac acceptable um, as the true. And I think we see that with white nationalism, that, you know, 90% of these uh, these people are descendants of old settlers um, that uh, today, you know. So I I realized that that um, it, it was a fairly recent uh, invention, the idea of a nation of immigrants, and it, it did originate with John F. Kennedy, and it took off because uh, it got published, and it was a bestseller. Um, because he was already famous, you know, he was already a celebrity uh, when he was a senator. And um, then he became president. So, and he, uh, you know, he, he um, instigated the um, 1964, he was dead when it was uh, uh, actually signed by Johnson, but he's the one that negotiated and, and put through the legislation for the 1964 Immigration Act that opened immigration to non-Europeans because it had been clamped down in um, uh, 1924. They put a stop because um, of Chinese immigration. Uh, they had uh, barred Chinese immigration already in the 1880s. And then um, the Eastern Europeans um, and Italians who came, um, when there were no immigration laws uh, against them, you know, immigrating only against the Chinese. These were Catholics and Jews mostly. And um, it, it was a very troubled time for the Anglo 
kind of the Anglo-Saxon state and Theodore Roosevelt and others that um, saw them as lesser lesser humans and dark, especially the Italians, you know, dark. So this Americanization process that took place, but they also cut off that immigration. No more immigration except Western Europe was allowed. So that, um, you know, so Kennedy, Kennedy's book was really the source of a nation of immigrants. And it hadn't really been... Um, uh, something that was was popular, you know, that everyone said, I, you know, everyone's an immigrant. Of course, it, it wipes out indigenous people in, entirely to say everyone's an immigrant. And the way Kennedy uh, handles it in the book is very interesting because he says he does mention that this one group um, could be said, not to be immigrants, and that's the Native Americans. And then he gives this this white nationalist theory that actually um, kind of developed in Ireland, but it has other sources too. It's a whole thing I go through in the book of uh, U.S. you know immigrants wanting to indigenize themselves one way or another. So it's a story of um, of um, uh, it's it's an idea that there were that the present Native Americans in North America were the invader were invaders who came from God knows where probably Asia from China. That's um, the Bering Straits theory, and uh, they come and they wipe out the Aboriginal people, and who may have come from Ireland. Yeah, so he actually makes himself a uh, uh, original original settler uh, who was killed by the Indians, his ancestors. Uh, this all sounds crazy, but it's um, you know it's it's really um, uh, it really is you know um, a um, uh, the whole. Um, uh, history of immigration is so fraught with with oppression of peoples and then putting them through the meat grinder of Americanization, Americanizing them. So, and uh, part of that one requirement um, up until probably, you know, the civil rights movement, it has waned, um, is uh, expressing anti-Black racism as a way of proclaiming your whiteness. Uh, James Baldwin wrote about that a lot, you know, in the 1960s, um, that uh, here's someone just off the boat, can't speak a word of English, um, has no education, and looks at me and, you know, five days later says, I'm supposed to go to work for him, <laughs> you know, that, that, I mean, it's an exaggeration, but you know, it's, it's um, that that was an experience of um, a black people that the the immigrant was someone who had to become, and of course, the Irish become uh, virulently um, anti-black, and also become the policeman. This was one of the most interesting things um, in the book. I was very interested in pursuing, you know, the research on Irish immigration. And getting to, you know, how uh, it was 
I posted on Facebook a, a question um, about Irish immigration and um, that I was writing a chapter and about, God knows, I haven't gone back to look for a while, but last time I looked, it was like four or 5,000 people had posted on there with their ideas. I think I only read about the first thousand. I gave up because it, it, I mean, I did discover two wonderful Irish historians who were uh, so helpful in guiding me, uh, Irish American historians who were helpful in guiding me to literature. And uh, But one, one thing stood out, uh, the, the question I posed was how did the Irish uh, become white? You know, that there's a book called that by Noel Ignatiev. And um, this one person who didn't identify herself as black, but I um, expect she was because she wrote, when they became the police. And I thought, well, how did this happen? You know, what was the process? And what happened is they, they um, formed gangs in the cities in Boston and New York and Philadelphia as immigrants had to do, you know, in order to survive. Um, they formed gangs. Um, they, they still do. You know, they're our main drug dealers in, in the Bay Area is a Honduran gang, you know. Um, so this is, you know, immigrants have to uh, find a way to survive. So basically the police, uh, um, and there was a, you know, the DiCaprio movie, um, Gangs of New York, that, that goes through some of this history. But they, the police are fighting them, but the, the police are not really formed as, as police forces when the Irish uh, refugees come in. So in the 1870s, the Irish start um, becoming uh, police. And then because they have kinship, you know, kinship relations with other Irish because they have clans, they start bringing, you know, their clans, brothers and sisters and, and their familial relatives into the police forces. And the police forces actually form initially in the large eastern, northeastern cities as uh, predominantly Irish. And to this day, most police unions are um, headed you know, by, by Irish. They still have uh, a lot of power in the police forces. They also um, took jobs as uh, slave patrollers in the, um, uh, what became the, the Confederate States, you know, between their arrival in the 1840s and, and you know, in uh, 1860, um, they worked as slave patrollers. Um, they took whatever jobs they could. They worked in the mines. They worked on the um, canals, on the railroads. Uh, the eastern half of the railroads were mainly Irish, uh, who had been Irish refugees and uh, Chinese on the West Coast. So that was, you know, those are some of the, and I already, you know, I talked about the Yellow Pearl. So when I, got, when I started the book, it was going to be a small book that was basically dealing, uh, you know, with the, with the Constitution and with the um, 
immigration and, and the oppression, I knew I wanted to deal with the uh, Irish refugees. Um, but I, as I be, got into it, it opened up other things. And the book went from uh, supposedly to be 60,000 words to 120,000. So it's, it's actually a big book now. It uh, wasn't really intended to be. It was going to be a kind of... Um, um, brief, but, you know, getting into just what, what really settler colonialism is. And, and that's still, you know, a theme throughout the book, but it grew to much more than that. So it was, it was really interesting because it was a very deep learning process for me as well. And I actually wrote the book, um, in the last six months, I wrote it, uh, I really sat down and began uh, seriously writing the book. Uh, so in, in some ways, the, um, the um, isolation, having to isolate, um, <laughs> gave me the opportunity to um, research and write every waking hour for the last six months, which was uh, really a great gift under these circumstances. But that's a long answer to, you know, how the book came about and developed and sort of what it's about. So um, just to kind of point us towards closing out here, I was curious about um, your thoughts on the Trump administration legacy as it pertains to certainly to imperialism, but specifically to immigration. And, and especially since you've spent the last six months talking about or uh, writing about it. I'm, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts as, as we close out the Trump presidency. Yeah, it was, he gave me an awful lot of material. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it's really interesting, this Americanization process, because here's a man who is the son of an immigrant from Scotland. His mother came from Scotland as an immigrant. And his uh, first-generation German, uh, his father, his grandfather was from Germany. And he had, he, he's such a white nationalist that immigrant means uh, people of color, means basically Mexicans, Muslims. He makes it clear who he means. And um, that... Um, you know, it was almost every day, of course, last year and 2018, especially the caravans coming to the uh, the border, <clears throat> that this lack of, um, uh, of um, consciousness from one generation to the next, or even one presidency to the next, that those, those um, wars... Uh, the U.S. covert uh, intervention in the in the civil wars and creation of a civil war in Nicaragua, and uh, taking the side of the governments in uh, El Salvador and and, Nicaragua, and uh, Honduras. Uh, I mean, um, El Salvador and Guatemala uh, military. Um, governments against uh, against uh, movements to displace them, that this created chaos 
the United States once they won, and they did win. They drove the Sandinistas out, you know, in in 1989 uh, electorally, and um, in El Salvador and and um, in Guatemala, um, they didn't uh, persist. You know, they the revolutions. Um, did not continue. So they basically, they won and they got out and, uh, you know, never thought about it again. So here 20, 20 some years later, 25 years later, it really started in, you know, around 2000 or so. It just wasn't that notice. Here come, you know, masses of refugees from Central America. And then they staged another coup, um, in uh, under Obama in 2000, uh, 2009, just after he took office, I'm sure it had already been in the works. And uh, uh, had Clinton for Secretary of State, she had ties with the uh, um, with the coup makers in Honduras. Um, they overthrew, uh, you know, a left populist, uh, a very wealthy rancher in Honduras. But nevertheless, he, he decided to take a stand for the people and um, was doing amazing things for a year or so and um, two years. And then he um, was uh, overthrown. So you have these Honduran Ever since then, it's been a drug-controlled, you know, cartel-controlled uh, country. And um, so you have these Honduran caravans coming to the border. So there's no consciousness in the, in the U.S. public of, of um, why they're coming, you know, why they're starving, why they're sending their children, unaccompanied children, to safety from gangs because the gangs start recruiting boys, especially when they're nine and 10 years old, you know, grooming them. And why would parents do that unless they were desperate? So, so it was bad. I mean, it was bad the whole time under Obama. He was, you know, he's called a deporter in chief in Central America. He was deporting uh, many more people. Um, but Trump made it um, uh, a popular cause, you know, of hating immigrants and um, touched into that, that, um, that thread, you know, of white nationalism that uh, hasn't raised its head since the 1920s and the anti-Catholic Ku Klux Klan um, of, uh, you know, immigrants being the main target of uh, well, there was quite a lot against the Vietnamese uh, refugees back in the uh, 1980s, especially in Texas, but uh, not a huge, you know, national national movement against immigration. So, um, yeah, Trump has set things back so much. I think that Biden, even in his most um, enlightened um uh, part of him, and there are parts of him that are enlightened, like the um, you know environment and uh, and immigration. Hopefully, although he was part of the Obama administration that was deporting 
uh, certainly his re- he won't have the same rhetoric, but um, to, to reverse all of the things that Trump has done, much of it by executive order, his, you know, is going to take him a good year. I don't see how he could possibly do everything as quickly, you know, as what has been done in four years. So there's so much damage that has been done uh, and so much damage in, in building that border wall to both the environment and to the people there um, that um, it's, it's really going to be uh, a chore to undo. And then if, you know, if, um, Trump manages to get uh, a war going with Iran uh, in the next the next uh, month or so, um, and if Biden has war on his hands um, or near war or the South China Sea or whatever, um, it, it's really going to be uh, uh, difficult, and I think. Um, we're going to need a really strong movement to keep him on track, you know, to um, reverse these items. He's put in some pretty good people. I think Deb Holland is an environmentalist and uh, he'll give her a pretty free hand um, with the, um, you know, with the endangered species and the environmental controls on the Department of Transportation, they have, you know, the uh, emissions controls. and So he's putting in pretty competent people. As far as the foreign policy goes, I'm not so um, confident um, that, uh, you know, the uh, Secretary of Defense and Secretary of, of State um, are um, not, you know, they're, they're clearly not, pacifists or anti-war um so that's so you guys are going to have um that on your hands you know trying to make uh turn that policy you know away from intervention and war and assassinations uh, of uh leaders iranian that um uh and, and drone attacks using, you know, using the air um, as a way of uh, targeted killing. So I guess our time is up, but um, if you have any one last thing you want me to talk about, let me know. ABT, did you want to jump in with that one other thing you mentioned? Yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, we've been talking about history and we've been talking about, uh, like, language and how important it is i think one of the things that struck out most to me in indigenous people's guide was the phrase in country now Uh you know i was in in 2005 through 2014 and i used the phrase a lot i know me and chris were talking earlier and he said that he used the phrase a lot and i just had no idea that in country was short for indian country and that one really struck a chord with me. Yeah, that was, you know, it, um, it was, it got revived um, during the uh, uh, invasion of Iraq. Um, 
the Indian country, but in the Gulf War was when I first started um, uh, really noticing it, uh, that it was Indian country. They weren't even saying in country. They were saying Indian country, Indian country this. And newscasters were saying it. And I wrote an essay about it uh, at the time uh, that it was was just really uh, – I was a visiting professor at Miami University in um, um, in uh, um, Ohio, not not in Florida, but in Ohio, right where Tecumseh, you know, that first big defeat in the old Northwest um, of the Native people uh, that fight the Hawaiian um, Timbers, and. I w- it was resonated so much because everything there is dated 1808, 1808, you know, and celebrating, uh, celebrating that genocide. And um, it, um, that was Indian country. That, that's the source of the, the word is that nor- old Northwest, the Ohio country that uh, is written into the Northwest ordinance to conquer uh, and that was where the U.S. Army really got formed. Um, and it it was resonating because they were using that as a, because uh, there hadn't been, you know, these big wars with regiments since the Vietnam War. All, they'd all had been con- convert, um, covert, except the very quick invasion of um, Grenada and the quick invasion of Panama in 1989 this was the first big war you know half a million troops and um the country was ecstatic i when i was driving back to ohio while the you know after the fighting broke out um i was driving back to you know serve in that that visiting uh, capacity there that winter and um everywhere i drove you know there were these huge yellow ribbons uh, draped around posts and trees and candles and windows all through, you know, I-40. I actually went down even lower the border to miss the snow along the Mexican border into those Texas cities. And I felt like if I had had a bumper sticker that said the U.S. out of Iraq, that my car, you know, if I were in it, I'd probably be killed. My car would be burned or wrecked or all the windows broken. That's how much violence I felt. And it was really terrifying to see that come back, you know, that, uh, that, and it's never really left since then, you know, it, um, um, it revived again, you know, with the, uh, Iraq war invasion of Iraq, um, but there was far more opposition to it. The Gulf War, there was hardly any opposition. Um, it was it was pretty pretty depressing, and none about Grenada or or uh, or Panama. Uh, so this is um, you know where um, uh, where it is uh, today. You know the. Indian country is uh, is sort of just in still in the minds of people um, when they think of uh, oh enemy territory, it's Indian country, and of course in Vietnam it had been 
it was it was uh it was all also everywhere and um there's a really good book that you all might want to read that's kind of um I think it's still in print by Tom Hayden, who was a peace activist, you know, leader back in the Vietnam War. He went to Vietnam several times and brought back POWs. And uh, it's it's called, um, um, oh, I can't think of the title, but it's, um, oh, it's a quote from Sitting Bull and I can't think of it. But look up Tom Hayden's work and find that um, it's a it 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 tells about all of the uh, uh, it was published like in 1972 73 and I didn't know at the time I had never heard um, about you know Indian country um, being a military term. And I, um, I read that book and it's like all of the terms, it's like, uh, well, it, when it's time for them to plant corn and, you know, of course it was rice they're talking about, but they used the terminology of Indian country um, for everything. And then um, in, uh, I started teaching at Cal State University in Hayward and Vietnam, I got had a lot of Vietnam vet, veterans uh, coming back um, and enrolling. We had the Alameda um, Alameda base and uh, Marines, especially were um, in my classes. And I was teaching Native American studies and and also U.S. history. And they would, um, um, you know, by then I knew about Indian country. And I would bring it, you know, I, I would, um, I would mention it and they would always comment that they had no idea what, when they used that term, they had no idea that it had anything to do with Native Americans, you know, and Indian wars, that it was, it was just um, a term and how, how unconscious that is, you know, how it's built into us. I think that's what it says. But the, yeah, the, the in-country is still used by journalists. I hear them all the time on CNN, you know, not just Fox News, but CNN and all the um, in-country. So, yeah, it's, um, I wonder, was it used that much? And when you were serving? Oh yes, it was it was used a lot. It uh, I I don't recall ever hearing it as Indian country, but I heard and used in country my entire time in the army, um, and because of you know I thought it was actually a, a military term of some kind that it was you know we're in country like we're on deployment you know and and I I didn't because of that shortened version I didn't connect it to Native Americans at all. Yeah. But you also mentioned in um, in Indigenous Peoples about how that the the mission to kill Osama bin Laden was named Geronimo. How we have you know seven or eight helicopter variations that are all named after uh, tribes or people. Um, that there, there's just no there's no genuine modicum of respect for Native American culture. And I, I don't know how I didn't see that more when I was still in, but n- now I, I can't not see it. Yeah. 
Well, the ball teams, you know, I, I don't know if you noticed that um, the Cleveland Indians are dropping, finally dropping. I, I did. They're finally going to change it. Yeah. And Trump was outraged. You know, he twittered and twittered, you know, weaker weaklings. Cleveland, don't don't give in to cancel culture. <laughs> He's now using that term. Yeah. So, and, the, and the, of course, the the... The Washington team, that was, uh, they haven't yet dropped it, but next year they've, um, they claim they're going to. So, but there are something like, um, I just saw it on Facebook, a young Native American had done this research, something like 8,000, 8, I think he said 8,000 um, uh, names of sport teams, you know, from junior high to to the professional mm-hmm. that are named one way or another uh, with Indian names or with Indian mascots, 8,000. Yeah, the, the high school I graduated from was just, just the Indians, the Dallas High Indians. Yeah. But that does get into people's subconsciousness, you know, and they, they don't know what it means. And I think that's why we have so much um, mental illness in the United States that, People have this, you know, this um, knowledge that they don't know what to do with. You know, it really all adds up to a kind of genocidal um, mentality that's unresolved and they're not responsible for. You know, they didn't do it, um, but they, it, they're they imbued with it without being able to explain it and kind of haunted in that way. Um as we do have a extraordinary um, access of, you know, there are studies of there all over the world. People experience uh, bipolar um, and autism and, and uh, depression. These are, you know, like things that can go wrong with the brain, but beyond the normal, you know, percentage in any country, the United States is just far and away more disturbed, you know, that uh, there's so much that's unspoken. um, And yet, you know, you're, you're digesting all that stuff. It's like toxins and have the effect on the human body. So that's why I think, you know, truth telling is, uh, is for good health. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. The, uh, no, it's 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 very common in in in, in veterans. You know, I know that I I had many. I, I still have moments like that. But the, you know, relearning history and remembering the the cultural connections for me that some of that pseudo history made. But it's like you know, for for modern veterans, talking about the truth is often akin to attacking their identity. You know, very much with you mentioned in that lecture I listened to recently about the the cult of the Constitution that it it goes so far beyond the actual meaning, you know, like you mentioned most people, most people in other countries that have constitutions have no personal connection to it. It's a constitution. It may work well, it may work poorly, but it's not something that they wrap around themselves. Whereas Americans really do. And when the military, that's doubly so. So I, I could, I could see, um, you know, the sentimental nature of people's service kind of creeping in and refusing to, to let them go. And, th- and that's a personal thing they have to deal with, but it brings me to, 
James Baldwin's um, mention about sentimentality and what sentimentality does to people in terms of remembrance. We don't remember accurately or honestly. We remember emotionally. We react sentimentally, you know, sentimentally. Um, uh, Roxanne, I want to thank you so much for coming and uh, chatting with us today. Um, do you have a, a specific website where people can go if you have a blog posts or articles or excerpts from your book or anything? I do. I, um, I don't keep it up as well as I should, but it's, it's called, it's, um, red dirt site, all, uh, lowercase R E D D I R T S I T E at, um, no, uh, dot, uh, com not no it's dot yeah it is dot com right dot com reddirtsite.com okay that way i can i can add that to the show notes and people can know where where to find your stuff um yeah at beacon press um you google just my name and beacon press um they also have a site and they put up excerpts of uh uh, of my books. So they'll have an excerpt up soon for nation of immigrants. Well, thank, uh, thank you again, Roxanne. It was wonderful to talk to you again. And I hope, uh, I hope we will uh, talk again soon. Thank you, Henry. Thank you, BT. You take care of yourselves. You too. Bye, Roxanne. Bye. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. You good people And listen to my song I hope you'll pay attention I will not 